0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to
2: Trillions. I'm Joel Weber.
1: And I'm Eric
3: Balchunas.
2: Uh, Eric, you're in a different location than usual, and you've <laughs> tested positive. I did, yeah. Um, it finally I, got I, you. How you doing? I held out longer than most.
3: I had a good run, Joel. Um, a lot of people around me got it, and I, in fact, the team called me the COVID dodger. For a while, because I had come close to it and never gotten it, but uh, it just shows you cannot outrun it for forever. Uh, and so, I'm gonna steal I'm that name from you
2: now. I, <laughs> I am the COVID dodger. I'm still COVID free.
3: Yeah, I, I'll give it to you. You're, you're okay. the chosen
2: one. Okay, so Eric, we've long talked about ESG on the program: environmental, social, governance. It's it's a space that you've expressed caution about at Business Week. We've done a lot of reporting about it, both on the positive and the negative. And we've got a couple of interesting guests today, Vivek Ramaswamy and Anson Frarix, who Vivek has written a book called Woke Inc. that came out last year, but the two of them have a, a new uh, financial company called Strive that's coming out. How did you find out about them? Yeah,
3: um, just through some people in the in- industry. I had a conversation um, with Vivek and um, this is a fascinating situation. This is a... Uh, part of how I think the stock market and companies have become sort of a battleground for the culture wars, and as you know, I my whole thing about ESG is n- not so much the virtue signaling, although there's a lot there, but more just I don't want investors to have a nasty surprise. Um, we all, that's our whole mission is just to avoid investors buying something they don't realize they're buying, and I think this year we saw ESG clearly people are now seeing that it's overweight tech and underweight oil and it's underperforming and that was that's been my main mission overall although i think in esg's case it becomes weird when you put your values into the stock market and everybody's values are different so how do you standardize that it's just a it's a really complicated space full of inconsistencies but then on the other side you've got blackrock and vanguard now have 7% ownership of the stock market of all stocks they have a lot of power concentrated in a small number of people. And Elon Musk was just on Twitter talking about this. I won't go into the details. He got a few things wrong. But one thing he did say, and I think he's right, is you know, I have somebody like Larry Fink, who probably owns 0.001% of all these stocks, yet he has voting power that is 7%. Um, and so, how much power are we going to put uh, is concentrated into certain people? And because they've come out a little bit on the ESG front, um, there's been a little bit of a pushback, and today we're, we're <laughs> going to talk to somebody who has a plan uh, to push back.
2: This time on Trillions, the ESG backlash. Vivek Anson, welcome to Trillions.
4: Thank you. Thanks, guys.
2: Okay, can you explain what you're up to? Because uh, this is going to be kind of a surprise for a lot of people that you want to take on BlackRock. Yeah.
5: So so thanks for the opportunity. And this is the beginning of a long journey. We see that eyes wide open. We're addressing what I see as a fiduciary breach in the asset management industry. We're the three largest asset managers in the world. And it's BlackRock, but it's State Street and Vanguard too. What they're doing today is they're using the money of everyday citizens, of their clients, to advocate for policies in corporate America that most of their clients disapprove of. That is a fiduciary breach. It is not representing the best interests of their clients. And it's happening on a systematic scale where here's the problem. It's not happening at a small scale. These largest firms in the world have so much concentrated power that they're only representing one viewpoint in the boardroom that that's also verging on what the Arizona attorney general actually has recently called the largest antitrust violation in history. Those were his words. Where, If you you run through this thought experiment and you imagine the CEOs of Exxon and Shell and ConocoPhillips and Chevron getting together in a room and deciding, for example, that they wanted to cut gas production and gas prices spike as a result, that would be the stuff of movies, right? You'd see handcuffs, you'd see antitrust violations, price-fixing allegations. Yet when the largest owners of those competing firms effectively mandate them to do the same thing, Somehow we as a culture have come to celebrate that as ESG. And our mission is to restore the voice of what we see as the everyday citizen, the actual client, the firefighter, the nurse, the doctor, the business owner, whose money BlackRock is investing to say that we bring a different message to corporate America's boardrooms that those citizens and those clients actually want us to deliver, which is to pursue product excellence over
3: politics. That's our message. Okay. So, and the, the plan essentially is to offer sort of replica ETFs that would you know engine number no. 1 is a firm that oh you almost remind me of the inverse of them they're a firm that is small putting out they have a beta product called vote it's just basically the S&P or you know market beta large cap something like that five basis points it's basically like IVV except they are going to vote in a very ESG activist kind of way so they're saying put your money with us and we'll go do this you're almost the opposite saying we're going to do these replica products but Give us your money and we will vote so the companies just act like themselves and we'll keep all the – we'll separate church and state completely. Is that? Do I have that right? And you're going to actually have a, a full line of products that are sort of um, very similar to BlackRock's, but promise this new voting uh, – a, a, way, a way of voting that is a little more, I guess, um, not anti-ESG, but just more focused on profits.
5: Yeah, so uh, Eric, we're entering the registration process soon, so I'm not going to talk specifically about product about product details here. But what I will say is that yes, we will be launching ETFs. Yes, as we said in the press release, the first ones coming the third quarter of the year. But the key hallmark difference of our firm and everything that we do will the key differentiator for our mission is bringing a different voice and vote to corporate America's boardrooms, bringing a a pro excellence voice that is distinguished. From the stakeholder capitalism voice represented by the big three, including BlackRock today, and no one is bringing that voice to the table. And it's not just focusing on profits, right? That's that's a Milton Friedmanite phrasing of of the problem. One of the things that I think shareholder capitalism as a philosophy lacked was any guidance to companies on how they are actually supposed to go about this task of maximizing value for shareholders. And so we we phrase it more precisely. We stand for this movement that we call Excellence Capitalism as a counterpart to stakeholder capitalism, where what Excellence Capitalism says is, focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services to your customers above all other agendas, including political and social agendas. And that's different than stakeholder capitalism, which says you're supposed to take into account 12 or 20 stakeholders at the same time. Which stakeholders, you might ask? No one knows the answer. It seems to be what Larry Fink or the CEOs of Vanguard and State Street decide on a given day. That's the problem we're addressing.
2: Okay, so wait, excellence. How do you define excellence then?
5: Yeah, and so this is going to be, you know we're going to have our own voting guidelines. We're going to have our own statement of of, of unpacking what excellence capitalism means. I I could do that here, but we could go on for hours. But mission orientation, for example, is something that's very high on that list. Having a clear mission, staying true to that mission in a way that doesn't deviate from that mission. I'll give you an example. Exxon's mission, stated mission, I'm going to get this almost right for the last number of years, for the last number of decades, has been to be a successful oil and gas company. BlackRock, in their letters to corporate America's CEOs, think about the presumption embedded in this, by the way, one asset manager writing an annual letter to America's CEOs. Just the, this, the hubris break into that as a separate conversation altogether. But in that letter, he says, pursue your purpose, But in the same letter, we'll tell them all of the ways in which effectively they need to change their purpose to not be an oil and gas company, to meet these carbon emission caps, to meet the standards of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. And and our message to Exxon will be different. If you're an oil company, be an excellent oil company. We will not tell you not to be an oil company, be an excellent oil company. And guess what? If there's a different company that's a solar company, our message to you will be equally, equally powerful be an excellent solar company. We will not tell you not to be a solar company, but we will not tell oil companies not to be oil companies. Disney. Let's just take Disney, a company that's been in the news recently. I think it bears mention. It's, it's a top of mind for me, frankly. I bring up Disney several times, even in the book that I wrote last year. And you know, Disney is a company that I think has veered from its mission in the near term. It has veered from its mission of serving its customers where it took political stances in recent weeks that survey data suggest over 60% of its customers were alienated by. If we're a shareholder of Disney in the future, our message to Bob Chapek would be clear. Three words, knock it off and focus on serving your customers. Today, his top three shareholders, as I understand it, are BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. They're not delivering that message. If anything, if you read through their language, if anything, they're delivering the opposite message to engage on political issues like the contingent ones that he's
3: engaged in. So so that gives you some sense of the difference of what our pro-excellence message stands for. And so, um, yeah, <clears throat> um, I got a copy of your book late last week. I read through some of it. It's, uh, um, it's very well written. Um, and, uh, the stuff about, you know, you growing up and stuff, I think was really interesting. Um, some of the stuff you talk about here does resonate with me a little bit. We've had, uh, we've had ESG debate podcasts, probably three of them in the past couple of years. And sometimes I bring up this hypocrisy issue, which is that people will buy an ESG ETF <clears throat> and they won't own Amazon and Exxon. Yet they're going to take five vacations that year. Uh, they're going to still shop at Amazon, and this interesting—it's this interesting, I guess, difference between how someone acts in their own life and how they sort of present themselves. And I think ESG ETFs almost, in a way, let them off the hook. And in your book, you talk about how some of these CEOs um, in the Goldman Sachs and some of these big companies by by taking these virtuous stances. They're able to sort of like cover up or keep the light off of the things they do that might not be be, be in conflict with that. You bring up State Street and the Fearless Girl, which is the statue for she, and yet they had lawsuits about not paying female employees as much. And you go through several examples. And that's one of my other problems with ESG in general. I feel there and the and the virtue virtuousness of some of the CEOs is there is hypocrisy in almost every case. Um, and I think that does not pass. I think people sense that. Um, on the flip side, I think people want companies to to do good things too. So I don't know. I just want to throw that out there and see what you have to say about that.
5: Yeah, I think you're spot on. And first of all, I want to congratulate you guys on actually opening up the ESG debate. Because I actually think that's one of the things that's been lacking is just debate in the public square. Small, small personal, funny story of mine that might have subconsciously led me to this mission. A couple of years ago, the Manhattan Institute, might've been a year and a half ago, Manhattan Institute invited Larry Fink and I to have an open debate on stakeholder capitalism. I tend to think that debate is a good thing. Agree or not, let's get the ideas out in the open and we're a better society for it. I accepted. He declined. I think that's part of, for me, the motivation of putting this to the market to actually let the market decide and let the actual participants in that market be able to have that debate in the marketplace of ideas. Now, now to your question on hypocrisy, I, I think you're spot on. And I think one of the things that I would encourage you to ask every ESG-linked asset manager in the U.S. is how they're implementing those same policies, say, in China or via their Chinese funds. You take the Exxon example that we talked about before. I am willing to wager a bet that most of those projects are proceeding, the ones that they're talking about dropping off the coast of Mozambique or elsewhere. Which are expensive,
2: expensive projects, right? I mean, like just to to stay with this for a second, this idea of excellence, like you're going to drop billions of dollars on a project that you might not see a return on that investment for years. And in that time, like, you know, you mentioned solar before the cost of solar has only come down. Like, is that going to be the best use of excellence? Yeah. And, and by the way, if you just take take a look at where
5: we are today. If Exxon had stuck to its plan of increasing oil production with oil prices being what they are, there's no doubt that both Exxon and the externalities for the US would have been better off. If anything, Russia's collecting higher oil and gas revenue with the recent oil and gas spike because of the lack of US reliance and the reliance of US companies and being able to self-sustain on energy production. But the point I was going to bring up in response to Eric's remark was, guess who gets to pick up those projects now? It's firms like PetroChina. And then guess who also owns approximately 7% of PetroChina? some of the same ESG kings who are proclaiming that Exxon should actually get out of the oil and gas business. And so that hypocrisy, ESG for thee, China for me, that's not a hypocrisy that I think we can abide. And I I think we see that regularly with these firms doing what they need to do to be able to capture profit for themselves at their parent company by expanding into the Chinese market, but leaving even the US holders, their clients of some of their US funds, holding the bag as a consequence. And I think that those are conflicts of interest that run really, really deep. And the hypocrisy is something that it's really worth paying attention to here because in many cases, these firms aren't even doing what they say they're supposed to do. I don't even know what ESG means today. Nine weeks ago, weapons manufacturers didn't count as ESG. Somebody decided nine weeks ago, in the last few weeks that they should, the definition immediately changes. Our main objection is that it should not be a concentrated group Of monarchs, really European style monarchs on American soil, deciding what does and doesn't count as the moral thing to do. We should sort those questions out as citizens through free speech and open debate. But if you're using client capital to do it, you better darn well represent the interests of those clients in your shareholder advocacy efforts and in your shareholder voting. That's what we're setting out to do.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Well, you, you know, you brought up the the idea of the the shareholder capital, the stakeholder capital. That being, I think that conversation has taken place in the public square, and where it landed was, you know, what we have over indexed on on uh, appeasing uh, shareholders at the expense of stakeholders. Right. And, and that is, you know, I think ESG sort of in the current form rose out of this away of like, how do we attempt to validate some of these other stakeholders? Right. So I'm, I'm curious, like in, in your, in your version of excellence here, how much stakeholder capitalism do you think is appropriate for any business to account for? Because this could come at the expense of employees, we're in a tight labor market. We're seeing what, how, how powerful labor is all of a sudden, right? Yeah. So I think you make some valid points. I
5: think that it was in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, and I write about this extensively in the book. It was in the aftermath of the crisis that there was a demand for a new look for American capitalism. ESG and stakeholder capitalism filled that void. However, I don't think that debate took place amongst the everyday citizens. It took place amongst a handful of CEOs and asset managers in cloistered corner offices, some of whom approached that in very well-intentioned ways. But even those well-intentioned acts, I think, have had adverse consequences by using the actual client capital, the firefighters, the nurses, the small business owners, as a tool to implement an agenda that most of those end users of capital disagree with. And that's created a new negative externality as a consequence, which is political division, which is rampant institutional mistrust, especially when they look at the hypocrisy of some of those same actors. And I think that might be one of our greatest social crises of all, is that institutional mistrust, that political divide, that partisan divide that we see tearing our country apart. That's a big part of what we're setting out to fix by now, taking this in the new decade in a new direction, to depoliticize the private sector so that it's actually a place where we can come together in transacting in that private sector, whether or not we're black or white, whether or not we're Democrat or Republican, and a political private sector can actually solve that problem created by stakeholder capitalism by bringing us all together again. And to answer your question uh, very specifically, we have a theory of the case here. Okay, I'm not saying that this should be the only theory in the public square, but this is the theory that, that we believe in and that we want to represent. And we think a lot of clients agree with us too, is how do you sort out the debate about who's, which stakeholders' interests to prioritize? That's a tough question. I'm empathetic to that decision. I've been a CEO before for seven years. I I understand that that's a tough seat to be in. I had to make some of these decisions about what I said after the George Floyd incidents back in 2020. I'm really empathetic to how you trade these factors off. Our theory at Strive and with our theory of excellence capitalism is that the number one stakeholder is the customer. And you focus exclusively on delivering excellence in products and services to your customer. Now, of course, do you need great employees to be able to achieve that goal? Of course you do. That goes without saying but maybe it bears, bears mention too, but that's that's our theory. And We think that's more useful. We also think it's more unifying. Unifying companies with their customers is also something that actually we think is going to do a better job of unifying companies with their workers too. I'll tell you, one of the things that we hear is the workers are demanding This, this is something that you'll frequently hear from CEOs who make proclamations. The workers, like the customers and citizens of this country, are not a monolithic body. In fact, they're often very representative of their customer base. The workers you hear on social media and on Twitter are not necessarily representative of the actual true workforce or the actual true customer base. And I think that's why when you look at this Twitter disconnect between how the Disney issue got adjudicated versus an actual survey of Disney's customers, you get the results of where most of the citizens, customers, and workers really are. We think we're actually going to be better representing those views through our mission at Strive.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. So we actually had a note saying that um, we encourage Vanguard and BlackRock to democratize the voting. We had a note that said, not all your investors live in Williamsburg. Um, And just because the loudest voices in ESG and the media are in New York City, and they tend to think similarly, and that's fine. But this is a a company that has investors all over the country. So we showed this huge map, and they have 30 million investors. Uh, I think at least Vanguard does. Um, And there's – so, I want to get your take on two things. One is just this idea of instead of doing what you're doing, what about if they were to somehow democratize the voting process? Now, a lot of the votes are boring and administrative, and, and people could care less, but maybe they poll the investors to find out where their heads are at. You know, Just Capital, uh, which is Paul Tudor Jones's company, did this. And the polling brings up some interesting things. It puts um, worker pay number one. Basically, all the top things are hey, CEOs should get paid less, workers should get paid more. Then like number five or six is climate change stuff. And I guess I would be curious of your take on um, just, what if these companies tomorrow said, we're going to poll and we're going to get the consciousness of our base and we're going to vote accordingly. Would you like shut down immediately or you think that that wouldn't solve the problem?
5: Well, look, I think that would be forward progress and I would applaud it if it happened. I think that voting and focusing on the shareholder vote alone though, is in some ways a false lightning rod, because most of the change that these firms are driving are not through proposals that necessarily make it to the ballot. It's through soft influence. It's what the corporate governance firms of these big three firms call engagement. That's the new word of the day. And and I think that it's the combination of why we talk about a voice and a vote. Here's the other thing about shareholder voting is one of the solutions that I contemplated, and I've been on this journey for two years, really thinking about the right way to solve this problem. Was it to advocate for giving the vote to every shareholder? That sounds elegant. The reality I found is that it's, it's, it's harder than it sounds, and it's less desirable than it sounds because there could be tens of thousands of votes that a shareholder, an individual is burdened with over the course of years of holding a broad portfolio of ETFs and index funds and securities that they're just not going to be equipped to be able to vote on. Well, I then came to the conclusion is the right solution, and that's what we've set out on here and strive to bring to the table, is competition in the marketplace of ideas. And so the structural change that I think we're going to see and we should see in the asset management industry is a slightly different one. It's one where investment advisors and other fiduciaries in the middle, the intermediaries, like state treasurers, like pension fund boards, that look at capital allocation and they look at attributes like risk and diversification and sector exposure, they're going to have to add voting exposure and advocacy exposure too, and make sure that their clients' and constituents' views and the true diversity of those views are represented in the true diversity and diversification of that capital allocation too. And Black Bar, BlackRock and Vanguard, let's say they did go to serving their clients, they have to keep in mind the clients are not the pension fund necessarily. They're the next client. We view the client as the ultimate client, the citizen of the fiduciaries in- as intermediaries in that chain too. And so in some ways, our critique here is not just directed or even principally directed at BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street, but to a system That allocates their clients' capital to firms that are known to advocate in ways that the end user client absolutely disagrees with in most cases. So, so our focus is on how do we restore the voice of that end user client, not just the quote unquote clients who are intermediaries in that system. And we think that this is going to be a structural change we see in asset management, where asset allocators, registered investment advisors across the country, pension fund board members, state treasurers are going to have to start thinking about not just risk and diversification and sector exposure, but voting and advocacy exposure to representing the true diversity of the underlying views of the constituents capital that they represent.
2: Okay. I, I think I have an understanding of how Vivek plays into Strive's business plan, but Anson, what do you do?
4: Yes, yeah, to myself. So, so just a quick background. Vivek and I—we've known each other since high school, which is great. And we had very similar backgrounds. My background was in private equity out of school for a couple of years, and for the last eleven years, I've been working at Anheuser Busch. And one of the things that really drew me to come back to, to Vivek and work with him is I had the absolute privilege and honor of selling some of the most iconic American brands that were out there. Things like Budweiser, which sold the American dream really in a bottle. Things like Michelob Ultra, which is this work hard, play hard type of brand. We had a lot of craft breweries that celebrated really the entrepreneurial spirit of America. And I was really excited about taking that message to a broader audience and to more, to more companies that, frankly, had maybe lost the way a little bit in terms of using their brands to advance really a type of principles. So for Vivek and myself, Vivek is going to be doing a lot of the thought leadership. And then for myself, I'm building the team kind of on the day-to-day basis. So right now, we're based in Columbus, Ohio. We're fast growing. We have a lot of people that are very hungry to, to, to spread this message, but then also we're building the team. So it's putting a lot of the processes, putting a lot of the right controls on a lot of the right compliance, but actually building the company to make sure this is a company that's going to be built to last for 100 years because that's really what we're doing to build the foundation and make sure that we're doing this the right way. Okay, so you got to have money to do that. What kind of backing do you have?
5: Yeah, so we've started with our seed round of over $20 million that included some of the backers that, uh, that you guys are familiar with that were, by the way, a politically diverse base of well-known backers. That's just the seed round. That more than well capitalizes us to the point of getting to our early product launches, but we expect to, you know, build, as Anson said, well, a company that's going to last for a hundred years and then some, and that's going to be a long journey. and 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 you know, I, I would not be surprised if that takes a lot more capital, a lot more human resources, a lot more of every
2: resource along the way. Well, you had some big names, Peter Thiel, Bill Ackman. How did those conversations go? So a lot of these folks have become, I would say, if not friends, allies
5: in thinking about how to revive the soul of both American capitalism and democracy. I think a lot of the writing I've done in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, in my book, et cetera, started an intellectual current that culminated in the creation of this company. One of the things I'm proud of is how ideologically diverse, from in the partisan sense, at least, ideologically diverse our base of backers is. They're all unified in our mission. There's no diversity on that. But there's a lot of diversity on whether you identify as a Democrat or Republican or none of the above. And by the way, the same thing goes for our employee base, too. That's something I'm proud of, too, is Our mission to restore a pro excellence voice in corporate America and to better represent the citizens of this country is something that rises above the otherwise partisan divides and currents. And, you know, we were, I, I was, it was very important to me to see that reflected in our investor base. It's very important for me to see that reflected in our employee base. A true diversity is a big part of our mission, bringing a true diversity of voices back to the table. And so, yeah, there are some big names there, but more important than the big names to me is also the thoughtfulness and even the diversity of perspectives that they bring to this mission.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
6: Dot com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: Here's two things I think you're up against. Number one is apathy. I just wrote a book um, about a lot of uh, Vanguard, basically, and one section looks at uh, voting. And I, a lot of the advisors I, I interviewed, they said, you know, none of my clients care how Vanguard votes and I don't even care. And I found that there was largely apathy Not everybody, but the majority were apathetic about it. they just wanted low fees and the, you know, returns of the market. That's one. Number two, BlackRock has some of the most liquid, low-cost, famous, popular ETFs and an army of wholesalers. Um, you know you're up against apathy and BlackRock, which are two massive hurdles. And, and what's your plan to sort of break through and try to get through that with this message? Yeah,
5: So I, I agree with you on the second. The second is a tall mountain to climb. I disagree with you respectfully on the first. And I think that, yes, I think there's a history of apathy with respect to shareholder voting of end-user clients. I think something changed in the last five years, right? When BlackRock achieved the scale that it did, it only started weighing in on the E and the S as opposed to the G. The G is classical shareholder voting, staggered board stuff. You're right. Everyday citizens could care less. Even many registered investment advisors could care less. But in the last five years, something has changed, and the votes that they're casting on these environmental and so-called social issues are actually at odds with their end user clients in a way that, look, I've traveled the country over the last couple of years. I have been shocked. I've been overwhelmed by how moved people are by the idea that their voice isn't represented, especially when you're using their money to do it. I will tell you, in the last 48 hours, I have been overwhelmed by the flood. It has been nothing short of a flood we've received since the Wall Street Journal first broke the story. It was a little earlier than we expected, but they broke the story. We, I mean, including people from BlackRock, from Vanguard, from State Street, from the world's largest asset managers telling us these are their words, not mine. They're fed up with the nonsense. I didn't expect to see that from the employee base. I expected to see it from the eventual end client base. I think that we are on a cultural tidal wave where I think I think, if you think about, it, talk about everyday Americans across this country, you don't mess with two things that that, that are theirs. You don't mess with their kids. You saw a lot about that last year and what played out in the school boards in this country. But the thing is, you don't mess with their money. And you don't mess with their money to weaponize back against them the things that they're donating to, the organizations they're volunteering for, the place, the ways they're raising their children. You don't use their own money to implement policies through the back door using corporate voting or corporate advocacy to do it. Once they wake up to that fact, This is a genie that you will not be able to put, no one will be able to put back in the bottle. And to your question of how we're going to be able to compete, look, there's vestiges of lobbying that favor the incumbent. BlackRock and other firms have been masterful at lobbying, at carving distribution channels, at being exclusionary in their business practices. As I said earlier, a lot of even the Arizona attorney generals talked about antitrust violations for these large ESG link managers. But the one thing we have going for us is the desire of the everyday citizen to be heard and to make sure that their capital is not weaponized back against the values that they hold most dear in their heart. And I think that's going to be the competitive advantage that matters most in the end. And if we're doing our jobs right, we're fixing a lot of those structural obstacles along the way. And if we fail to do that, it's not going to be for because of the failure of the demand. It's going to be because we failed to do our job in fixing a broken system. That's the job we're taking on at Strive. But the everyday citizen's voice is is every there every bit there. There's a dam waiting to break for them to actually be heard in our economy and in our corporate boardrooms again.
3: Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's really. I've been covering ETFs for uh, fifteen, nearly twenty years, and I remember when everything was like, oh, whichever ETF is cheaper, I'll pick that. It'd be. It's going to be interesting to see if now ETFs are now picked. Because the cost will be all else equal, the holdings all else equal, which is how they vote. Um, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch. This is a, Joel, this is going to be uh, one uh, really interesting experiment to see play out.
2: Yeah. And so just to bring it back to ETFs, what are we going to expect to see from you? So, so, at a
5: high level, what we've said is our, our products are launching in the third quarter of the year. As a firm, and, and we'll say more about that at the right point in time, but as a firm, our mission is about restoring that everyday voice of the citizen in the boardroom, and we're going to be launching this as a movement. Think about this as, as movement marketing, not ETF marketing. Okay, The movement we're marketing is excellence capitalism in the American economy. This new idea that the stakeholder you put first is the customer, and it is not just the apologetic pursuit of excellence, because I think that's a lot of what's behind this three-letter acronymized capitalism. Pick your three-letter acronym of choice. It's about apologizing for the pursuit of excellence. The thing that's different about Strive is that we strive for excellence unapologetically, and we will encourage every major company in America to do the same thing. That isn't a company, that is a movement, and we're building that movement. And we think that not all, but most of the citizens of this country are going to be behind us. And I have a message for those of us, for those who disagree with us, too. It's that we respect their decisions to go in a different direction. It is okay for someone to say that they want to embrace the stakeholder capitalism agenda. There should be a choice for everyone. We just think we're building a choice that's the right choice for what we believe will be most Americans. And as Eric said, it's it's, it's uh, time will tell as we as we run this experiment over the course of the
2: next year. Okay, closing question that we always ask on trillions, What's your favorite ticker other than your own? You don't have one yet, but like what's your favorite ETF ticker? I
5: like actually, you know, I'm gonna give you uh, uh, an answer here that may be a little bit surprising. I like the name VOTE vote. I think that it stands for something powerful. And you know what? We can all agree or disagree on underlying merits, but if we can all come back together and agree that it's important to represent the views of citizens in the boardroom, that's a mission I'm going to be behind.
2: Not one that I would have expected,
5: but... (laughs) But also
3: expected. Expected (laughs) Expected and unexpected at the same time. Yes, exactly.
2: Yes. All right, Vivek, Anson, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye.
0: Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.